1: Hello and welcome everybody to Uncommon Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Ramsey. And I'm Aaron Kramer. Thanks for tuning in. This is a fun one for me because this is one of the reasons why I was so attracted to Aaron Kramer when we first talked. Holy cow. What are we talking about? Can't wait to get the guests on the show, but let me tell you the story first. Yes. So financial therapy, this was one of the reasons why I was like, okay, this Aaron Kramer is a little bit different. So he called me, I was part of the FPA board. I still am of Iowa and for some reason we got connected. Do you know why you did? Or just because you wanted to be a member or what Yeah, was I was that? trying
2: to figure something out to get around other good advisors.
1: Yeah. So he called and the th- three minute conversation turned into what? Like 25? It was like an hour. Which is pretty much typical with Aaron. Yep. But what he was talking about was financial therapy and like how money is, yeah, that's kind of the quarter, but it's really about what's going on in people's heads. And I was like, wow, that sounds a lot like how we practice. And there's not a lot of people out there. And I think that he felt the same way. So today we have the one and only Dr. Megan McCoy, who is a financial therapist on, we're going to talk about all things therapy and money, which two things that probably people are like, I hate my life, but this is going to be awesome. So Megan, welcome to the show.
0: (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait to talk about it. And one thing that I want to unpack, and we haven't talked about this yet, is the difference between COVID, post-COVID and like pre-COVID, post-COVID. I feel like something has changed in people and I have a feeling that you're going to be able to unpack more than I am or Aaron, but what has happened? What we're not going to get there yet, but I do want to unpack that at some point. First, I would love for you to tell our listeners, how did you get into financial therapy? I think that you're a therapist and then you kind of turned to the financial world from the research that I did. You can talk, you have the floor, (laughs) talk as long as you want. We love you. (laughs) Glad you're on the show. So, oh. I'm like geeking out over here. Let's go.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I started as a therapist. I uh, was a marriage and family therapist specializing in couples since 2008. Then I decided that I needed more skill sets. So I mistakenly went back and got a PhD, not knowing that PhDs are like research degrees. And so I was kind of in my doctorate program, being like, I'm so bored of stats. I'm so bored of research. Yeah. <laughs> Get me out of here. And then the first ever financial therapy conference came to town. The only reason I came was that they let grad students in for free. If they had charged five bucks, I probably would not have been there. Oh, we've all been there.
1: (laughs) We've all been a broke college kid. We all knew.
0: So that was like 2013 and I haven't looked back. So at that point I had like six figures in student loan debt, but the worst part was I didn't even know where they were housed. It took Mm -hmm. me like several phone calls just to figure out where my student loans were located. That's how avoidant and uh, probably just not literate around money I was. So I jumped in. I took financial counseling classes. A funny story is I actually took capstone in the financial planning program by accident first. (laughs) So I had baptism by fire, but I love it. Now I work in a financial planning department and really get to devote my time looking at financial well-being. How do we reach that Um, And how can financial planners kind of steal what we already know, kind of plagiarize what we already know from counseling to better address their clients' needs?
1: Right. I love that. I I think there is something about it. Like here's a conversation that I had with a dentist. She was interviewing for financial advisors. And first I was like, how's that going? She's like, Oh, it's horrible. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I totally understand. We're idiots. Anyway. (laughs) So about 45 minutes into the conversation, we were having lunch. She was like, Hey, when are we going to start talking about my money? And I was like, Oh, Angelina, we've been talking about your money this whole time. Like that's, that's the kind of thing, right? Like it's talking about the person before we talk about the money, the money is a tool in order to help the individual realize some of their goals, but it doesn't have to be the main focus when you make it the main focus. I think people. Especially advisors miss the point. <laughs> oh yeah, completely. So, what would be your definition of financial therapy?
0: Yeah. Oh, great question. So it keeps on evolving, but I come from. There's many different approaches to it. I come to the one that is a cross training of of practitioners. I think I'm always going to be a therapist at heart, but I love that I now am financial literate enough to provide the right referral, the right suggestions, the right first step to my clients. And I also train uh, planners in our financial therapy certificate, which is really designed to help planners integrate counseling-like skills, communication skills, conflict resolution skills, and also just knowledge on how our brain works how our psychology works how family works It kind of helped them in all kinds of conversations while still being a planner
3: that's really
2: cool. amazing like I, I really want you to like for our listeners because i know i can describe it but not near as well as you can but like financial money scripts you oh, know go. how that plays a part in like relationships and couples
0: yes oh, okay yeah. I, I love go. this idea that like Since the money taboo was so strong, by the way, we'll foreshadow, Philip, that I feel like the money taboo is lesser now post-COVID and because younger people are less taboo about it. But when when I was growing up as a geriatric millennial, (laughs) we we didn't talk about money. We didn't talk about that with our family. I remember asking my dad about how much money he made because I had to put on my FAFSA. And my dad was awestruck that I would ask him how much money he made a year. And I was like 18 at the time, right? So anyway, the money taboos, I think sometimes facilitate beliefs around money that we take as fact, that we just think, Everybody thinks uh this way, the same way I do, because we never talk to other people and discover they don't think that way. Yes. So, money scripts, there's a bunch yes. of them out there. But this wonderful, wonderful researcher, writer, social media influencer named Brad Klontz created this thing called the Money Script Inventory that focuses on the four core ones that he saw out the most. There are money and in- avoided individuals like me that either felt inept at their financial, like didn't know anything about finances. Or they had like some moral dilemma. Like I wanted to save the world since I was a little kid. Like I knew I would want to be a therapist at like six. I had that like Charlie Brown therapy thing going on. Yes. So for me, a part of the reason I was in so much debt and wasn't paying attention to it is that I somehow equated saving the world with taking a vow of poverty. Almost, you know what I mean? Like I'd give it all away. Yes. The so <laughs> anyway, so that's money avoidance. I always call myself a foreign money avoidant. There's also people who feel like. For other people to respect me, I have to show my success. I have to show that I have accomplished things in life. Otherwise, they won't think I'm smart enough or they won't think I'm talented enough or they won't think I'm hard enough worker, right? Those kind of things. Those are money status individuals. They seek this idea of like, I need status to symbolize to others I'm worthy, right? Yes. Mm. And then there's money worshipers who see money as I don't know, the fixer of everything. And yeah. money does solve a lot of problems. Let's not get that twisted. Like it's nice to yeah, have. Helpful. To help, but right. it's not going to fix everything, right? right? And so money worshippers sometimes are just struggling to acquire without realizing that's not going to be the end solution. And then all the financial planners who are listening know the last one, which is money vigilant, that they think money is, is, is important, that money needs to be protected. The only downside is that sometimes money vigilant almost are too secretive or too stressed about their finances. So, loosening up and seeing balance is kind of key with that script.
1: (laughs) Love that. I love it. You know, it's it's interesting because I've told this to people and they probably are like, you're in the wrong industry. But I'm like, I don't really love money. They're like, I'm sorry, what? I love people. And I love what they want to do with their life. And we use money to help them achieve that. But I heard this one thing and it was really kind of like profound to me. They said the difference between, uh, there's many differences, but one of the differences between a rich person and a poor person is the poor person believes that they have the hope that the money will change something. (gasps) Where the rich person realizes that it won't. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. yeah, they can buy everything, but it's not going to buy your happiness. Like there is something mentally that has to trigger. But the, the person that's poor is like, oh, as soon as I get money, oh, I'm going to have all this, you know, oh, it's going to be not true, <laughs> but very interesting. And then I would say that I do love money because there's a transfer of trust that happens. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of, I love relationships too. Like that's gold to me. I yeah. know that. But, uh, I love relationships and I love that there's a transfer of like, okay, now there's a trust level that I'm giving, you know, like I've never wrote a big enough check and giving it to somebody like, I got you, you know, uh, and then back to, and I'm going to let Aaron ask the next question, but back to Angelina at our lunch. Okay. Two weeks later, she calls me and she was like, Hey, I just came into a lot of money. What should I do? And I remember I was like, Oh, I think you should do this, that, and that. And she was like, how did you know? <laughs> i was like well i listened like i don't know like <laughs> anyway so i do think the people that understand this therapy part can help people at a different level than the person that's just like well this is a big wirehouse. is what we do yeah put you in a you know box in a square like we're we're definitely going to try to do these things in a customized way because people are different right, right. okay so I'll get off my soapbox, but I do. I also get excited about it. Aaron is super excited. Go ahead, big dog. I
2: don't know, man. I'm like over here, like I don't know. I have so many questions. We got to make this last three hours. Uh, <laughs> but like, how about like explain? Like, do you see? Cause you like, cause you led the master's program, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Are you still doing that?
0: Nope, I am uh, taking more time for research. So we have an amazing new director named Derek Sensenig who okay. is okay, fantastic.
2: Well, so. In your experience, how much have you seen that, like us financial planners, like struggle with like the therapy side? Because you know a lot of us are like numbers driven. Like we love Excel spreadsheets and all these things, which tends to be like, oh, you struggle on the emotional side. But in my experience, all the and for more reasons than not, like I probably am attracted to these people. But like, uh, that are good advisors are like, oh, in another life, I'd probably be a therapist. And you're like. Oh, that's totally makes sense. But I know there's a whole school of them that is not like that.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. So this is great. Our master's program at Kansas State is set up to help three different tracks, right? So one is those who are career changers or didn't get a financial planning undergrad. So you can get the CFP content, right? One is advanced financial planning, which is like tax and estate planning, and more complex and going deeper than the original content designed by the CFP board. And then we have the financial therapy track. So some of my students picked K State to do financial therapy. Some of my students were CFPs who found our program for the advanced planning. And we're forced to also take the financial therapy. Uh And they come in dragging. (laughs) And like the first couple of classes is always like, I don't want to be a therapist. How do I have the line? No, that's important. We have to have a boundary between what a therapist is and what a planner is. They're not trying to be the same. But then by the end of the class, they always write this reaction paper exploring their own beliefs around money. And every one of them almost uniformly says. I did not want to take this class. I did not select this class. I cannot tell you how much it improved my own relationship with money, my relationship with nice. my family members around money. Yes. That I feel like I'm going to be able to do the work better now with my clients over and over again. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. Like, it's, it's so funny because I think you know, me and Philip and I know a couple other of my friends that are mentors to me, like in the financial world, I would have been like, oh, I can't wait for the, it would have to be like, <laughs> a struggle not to take the financial therapy classes and be like, Aaron, you're a financial planner. Go like you need to focus <laughs> on the the estate planning, and all that stuff.
3: <laughs> yes,
2: right.
1: Oh, I love and for it. the record, like we're not dogging with people who are all numbers, like, yeah, that's just like good for you guys. It's amazing. You're wired that way. We're just not, yeah, and we are. We could I'm, definitely boil down the numbers and we have software to help us with that. But I like the
2: numbers, but I just like the, the emotion of yes. why, like, yes, I'm a big goals person, yeah, and if you don't know why you're like how you operate, you're never going to get to that big goal. Like that's an athlete of any sort. If you have big things in your past or your your beliefs that are holding you back to really get where you want to go, that's what needs to get found. And that's through like therapy and stuff. Numbers are numbers. We can calculate numbers. Like I'm not saying downgrading the other planners are like, (laughs) I like crunching numbers. Cool. Numbers are pretty simple. It's math. You know, like the complication of the biggest, most complicated muscle in you, me being me head, I'm like it's your brain. <laughs> yeah. Figure it out, you know. Right. Well,
0: yeah, it's and- funny because even if you have the perfect recommendation, like you are so yep. skilled at financial knowledge, people don't listen to logic. I would have not stayed up until like one o'clock in the morning watching reality shows last night. Yep. I would have gotten up and worked out, and I'd be drinking water instead of my third cup of coffee. If mm. logic works, like logic yeah. doesn't work, we have to find ways to engage with our clients with emotional pleas or connecting it to the motivation or understanding what um, the negative behavior is serving a purpose for And yeah. all those things are counseling like skills that you can learn to be a better
3: yeah. number guy. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, <laughs> and It's so true. Like, and I, I think it's such an important skill for planners to get this because if you do have a good relationship with people and because money is so important to people, um, you end up getting into people's lives that you hear things that you would never expect to hear from a couple as a financial advisor. You're like, you're telling me what yeah. I was like, now I want to cry. Why did <laughs> you put this burden on me? Right, right. And it's right. like, but like to be able to handle that, but also like, and I know I love this site. So, I mean, and I've read those books. Like I know Dr. McCoy, like I've told you like the you know facilitating financial health, all those. Oh yeah. And it is like, it tells you where your line is. And so it, like you, it kind of helps you like, Degrade the conversation. Hey, here's a card. You need to go talk to this person. Yeah, yeah. Not trained in right. this. Right. But like, uh, right. it is, you hear a lot of stuff because it's so personal. So it's, yeah. I mean, it is that. And I think
1: this is the reason why I think it's so important. Uh, and going back to flexing the most biggest muscle you have, at times things are not going to go your way. Right. And if you have and understand your why, you can push through those. And what I would say is, an advisor, I mean, All of our plans, all of our plans, like Mike Tyson was right. Everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. (laughs) All of our plans are different than what they started with, but understanding what happened and understanding why that happened and understanding why they're so important to keep pushing through and adjusting accordingly to get you to your ultimate goal. And like, we're not casting judgment on like, Hey, this happens. No problem. How can we adjust? So let's understand too what went wrong here, you know? So I think that's super important. Okay. So let's talk about, you have a really great relationship with FPA, the financial, oh, yes. yeah. Yep. Certified uh, planners found like all that stuff. I would love to hear just kind of like how that relationship started, where that is currently. And like, what is your role with an FPA, that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah. So I'm uh, so lucky um, for falling into all these Providence, like good situations throughout my career. Recently, I was able to fall into a research project with the most amazing team of researchers. Um, they are actually the Money Quotient team, Carol Anderson, her colleague Deanna Sharp, which um, if you haven't heard of Money Quotient, it's about Finding your clients' values. And it's just a powerful um, motivation of understanding life planning, those counseling like skills we're talking about. Anyway, FPA um, offered their very first grant funding to researchers. And the money quotient folks and me decided to do a study really about how to foster trust in in financial planning client relationships. Um, We had some really interesting questions, like we asked both planners and clients. Um, do you think your clients would leave you if you could get a better ROI or if you, they found a better communicator or if they knew their values more? And over time, we found that the clients reporting that values was more important than return mm-hmm. on investment and planners were over at, uh, rating them. We also did um, a financial anxiety scale in there and we asked clients how financial anxious you are. And then we asked planners, how anxious do you think your clients are? Uh, so. To put some context to this number, we know that about 72% of Americans have financial anxiety. In our study of wow. just financial planning clients, which tend to be skewed higher wealth, have a steward of their finances and their planner. What do you guys think the anxiety rates were? Lower. 71%. So 1%. Wow. You
1: <laughs> nailed it. Nailed it, I'd say
0: close though we did not expect only one percent difference between the general public having 72 percent rates of financial anxiety and our financial planning clients having 71 percent our planners didn't either because they said mm, among my clients i think about 35 to 40 percent have financial anxiety mm. so way underestimating how anxious wow. our clients were yeah.
2: wow we got to do a better job <laughs> um did you i had to know like did you Pulling some of that data, did you guys use data points to help with that?
0: No, but I love data points. I'm so glad you're bringing them up. I use yeah. them. I use them for um, a couple of the inventories I use with my undergrads. But financial planners can use them for the clients' money script inventory we talked about earlier. Yeah, and yeah. a bunch of other like we that have kind it.
1: Of it. Yeah, we utilize that. Yeah, <laughs> every client. Okay. You know, this is something funny that I think uh, is kind of reassuring because normally when you talk to advisors they're always like we're amazing you know like so when i you have like a new client conversation i had one this morning i just said hey let me tell you what we've done wrong and they're like mm, uh-huh. let me hear right and i said about 3 years ago we just took people at their word of like what's your risk tolerance <laughs> well hi because the market has been going up for a long time yeah And now we're like, okay, we're not going to take your word for that (laughs) data points. We're going to send you a investor profile and we're going to kind of get a good idea, a better idea than just like, we're going to take the emotion out of it. Right. Yeah. Um, And so that's something that we've done in the past. I think that, okay, we can do better and grateful for Aaron. He's like, there's a thing called data points. And we're like, all right, let's invest in something like that because it's important. Right. Uh, and then also too, I think it's wise to be using other people's research, not our own. Like we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, yes. We don't have time for that. So there's other way smarter people than, than we are yeah. to be able to help us but with this stuff. I want to go back into that uh, study you guys
2: did. So why do you think like, what is, I mean, your professional opinion or what the, if you found the data, why is it the people that have financial plans is so high? Like in my mm-hmm. opinion, like, or not my opinion, my guess would have been like, Oh, it's toilet. They have a plan. They know the outcome. We've had Monte Carlo simulations ran like we're good. Like you should feel so good. Like, why are you more anxious than the people over here that have no idea?
0: Right. You know, part of it might be the context of the ambiguity of everything that's happened the last five Mm -hmm. years. You know, there was a lot of unrest and people do way better with bad news than potential for bad news. You know what I mean? And so I think there was a lot of like, is COVID coming back? Are we going to a recession? Or are things changing? And I think that ambiguity was worse than if we actually had gone to the recession. Yes. So that might be potentially it because what we know is that financial stress is its clear. Like It makes sense. If you don't have enough money, like when I was a grad student and wouldn't have paid $5 for a conference, that's financial stress, right? Financial anxiety is absent of some kind of marker that you're not financially well. Mm-hmm. You have enough in your bank, but something makes you worry. That that insidiousness of like, is everything going to be okay? I wonder if a lot of us are dealing with that in general because of COVID. Okay,
2: yeah. Um, another thing that this good. I want you to touch on because you can talk about it so much more high level. Um, but first, I got to make sure you read the book. <laughs> probably did but did you read the uh psychology of money by like morgan uh,
0: love it i actually yes. used his warren buffett story for my undergrads and i could see them like s- like zoning out and then when i tell the story about like warren buffett showing you worth 11 million to be invested like us they're all like wait what yes. <laughs> i'm starting to pay attention
1: yeah <laughs> i know
2: um so when he gets into that book and he talks about how like money's so emotional but like we will believe uh if you like you took two people and one person had this good reason of why the market was just going to tank. Right. But another person had a way better reason how the market was going to stay good and stay going up that like the person with the, you know, doomsday story was going to be on news everywhere and people yeah. are going to find him to be way more intelligent even.
0: Yeah. Like, why is that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it feels like, OK, so a funny thing about uh, researchers is we don't like to say things are facts. We like to do 400 studies on something and say the results suggest this is true. Right. Like, okay. <laughs> right. And I think those doomsday, I don't know, talking heads just often p- present everybody's worst nightmare. So... Um, convincingly so confidently so like this is going to happen that people oh,
1: yeah. are like yes that shoe is going to drop. Fear sells fair sells. I think at Glenn Beck gosh he was banging that drum for years so eventually he's going to be probably right like you know but like it took him 24 you know 12 years to f- be right like I don't know mm-hmm. I don't know if you're right man <laughs> you know. So I live like that
3: <laughs> yes
2: well, uh, I lived in the book He's talking about how You can talk on this better because you understand the brain way better. Like just be positive and having a positive outlook actually takes a lot more intelligence because you have to keep your frontal lobe cool, calm, and collected to think (laughs) through it. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, sweet, because I'm a pretty happy guy. I just thought it was just because I ignore everything else, you know. Like, but like, how is with money and like making money decisions? Like, how do you suggest people to like make those hard decisions for people. Cause I know like, I mean, I just learned a fact or a study that we make, like the average person makes 10,000 decisions a day, Mm -hmm. you know? And by the end of the day, like you should be making money decisions because it's so complicated. Tapped out. Yeah. So for you, like what would you suggest or give people advice on like making these hard money decisions? Like when they have the most brain power,
0: Yeah, well, you're so right. We make so many decisions a day. That's why we rely on those shortcuts, those heuristics that we sometimes blame for making mistakes, but they are right most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're so right that optimism is such a buffer against so many negative outcomes and and so correlated with so many positive outcomes. One of the alumni from our program at K-State, Shane, Annette um, is a faculty member. He researches how optimism and and hope can protect you from downturns in the hedonistic treadmill, you know, like you stay happier. Um, And I think part of it is our ability to storytell. Optimists are better at saying... Things like, that decision helped me get to where I am today, or, you know, the kind of Nietzsche phenomenon, or optimists are better at saying, um, that was the right decision at the time, I- I'm okay. Like, th- they're better at telling a story. And some of us who are more realistic or pessimistic will use that story to create self-fulfilling prophecies about yeah, ourselves right. or our future or our financial situation. So, the more optimist and more happy, the better your outcomes will be. <laughs> yeah, well
1: reinforcing your negative. You can either positively reinforce your perspective or you can negatively continue to reinforce where are you going? Which direction do you want to go? Because there's always ways that you can look at it very differently. Right. right? And there's,
0: yeah, this idea of like equifinality, like there's so many paths we can get to the same final destination that Mm -hmm. if you made one bad decision out of those like 10,000 you made today, those other 999 will probably get you to your end goal anyway. So I think uh-huh. having that in the back of your mind, it's, it can be powerfully, I don't know, uplifting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what other things in that study that you're talking about did you find fascinating?
0: Yes. Um, so a new thing, sorry, this is still about financial anxiety, but it's so interesting to me is yes. that I, I knew from my background, this thing called stress. EU stress is how it's written. You stress is that some level of stress. is good for us, right? Like I stayed up too late last night, but I still got up and worked on some work because I have a deadline and I wanted to get it done by the deadline. So I was up early and active. If I didn't have that deadline, I might have laid in bed too long. I might not have gotten up and been as active. So there's some level of stress that's good for us. Mm-hmm. And we applied that to the anxiety levels. And we're like, do clients need a little bit of anxiety to do the right thing? Like, do we need them to do be a little stressed so that they actually follow through our recommendations or show up for meetings. Yeah, we found, we found that like you just need a if you're too low of stress, you're not coming in, you're not mm. uh engaging with your financial planner and the recommendations the way we want you to. So, we want to lower our clients' financials, you know, anxiety, but not get rid of it.
3: Yeah,
2: it <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally yeah. makes sense because I mean, anxiety gets too like high, like it, most of us, you know, shut down, mm-hmm. you know, like in like not make a decision, but it needs to be enough there to like, make you in that action mode.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I've, I should have said this too, when you asked earlier about why do I think our sample clients had higher levels of financial anxiety? Um, I wonder if it's also something we talk about is that we tend to have clients who have higher anxieties that's why they sought us out in the first place that they care about this that they want to work on it the same way that a lot of our clients have a lot of financial literacy uh, because if you don't have enough literacy you might not realize that your financial situation is complicated enough to need an expert yeah yeah now,
2: tell me, i know before we start hit the play button on this we're talking about that you were bringing up that bell curve of like oh Let's get into that. I think that was fascinating.
0: <laughs> yes, the Dunning-Kruger phenomenon is that there's actually a bell curve with intelligence that we tend to be falsely confident when we don't know a lot about this topic, and the more we learn and dig into it, the more complicated it appears. Like maybe, like if you think about your financial planning education, like when you're in the intro class, you're like, "I got this." A little Excel, a little time value of money, I'm okay. And then you get into, it and you're like what are these tax codes? Like, what are these estate plans? And so like, the more you learn about tax, the more you realize it's more and more complicated. But if you're only doing TurboTax, it doesn't seem so bad.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so true. Because I read something there, like to keep yourself humble, but you have to keep learning because the more
1: you keep learning,
2: the more you realize how much you don't
1: know.
0: know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it.
1: That's good. That's good. Okay, let's talk about it. So post pre-COVID, post-COVID, have you seen or is this just something I feel? Like people are different. And I maybe you've already answered it is the anxiety of the unknown. What what is this? Like and I think that has changed people in a way that you just didn't know how you would change, right? Like just this level of anxiety of what's happening next. Is not that was probably over the level the normal level of stress that we wanted. And it and it's now like exposed some cracks, I think, in people, which isn't bad, right? Like let's oh. let's address them. But I do feel, and maybe you can confirm or deny, people are a little different now.
0: Yes. You know, and it's so interesting. There's a couple things I see going on, and this is all just anecdotally my experience, not research-based, but I feel like. Because we were isolated, we open up more on social media or other like phone calls or something. But I feel like people are much more transparent than ever before about money, about mental health, about struggles. I feel like Mm -hmm. there's been a movement of like... The perfection of I don't know, the Kardashians or whatever is gone. And now we want people who are flawed or or dimensional or not perfect. Like, authentic. Authentic, yeah. 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 Like that story of like, here's the things I've done wrong with clients. That realness, I think, is something uh that came about because of COVID. It's
1: mm. good. Fascinating. Fascinating. Have you ever done a study like that was like six years ago, and then we re-reintroduced study? Like, is, is the results different? Like <sighs>
0: Well, what's interesting is we just did that U.S. study that I was talking about that was uh, funded by FPA and an organization called Alliance. That study was done two years ago. We just did it again in Canada. And of course, Canada and the U.S. are different, but we're already seeing some striking differences. Their financial anxiety was lower than we anticipated. Um, interestingly, back in the FPA in the America, what we found is that planners also believe that their clients wanted um, in-person sessions more than their clients actually wanted in-person sessions. Like a lot of clients were like, I love not going to the office. Like I want to talk about my money in my sweatpants. Um, So that's what we found in America. In Canadian, there was a move just a year and a half later to come back into the office. Like they're wanting to be in person was a little bit higher than American. We're still really early on this study. So I don't want to say anything Mm. is factual yet, but um, we're, this is only two years and both of them were, Post the, the heyday of COVID, and we're already seeing differences. So I think we're going to keep on seeing changes based on how far we move from COVID, but also generational changes as the what year you were impacted by COVID is so different. Like my daughter, for instance, was five when it happened, no, five and three their experiences of covid was so much more dramatic and big than mine you know yes um yeah so i think there's gonna be lots of things that we discover moving forward
2: that would be so interesting to see that through your eyes because i you know my daughter was yeah hit like when she was in kindergarten you know yeah and she missed a lot of schooling because of it right the ripple right. effect
1: is going to be interesting yeah right yes, I, I
0: think <laughs> Once a uh, once a week or so, I make a joke about the COVID kids saying something I would never have thought of, like, oh, you know, like we need to wash our hands or something. Like as a kid, I probably wouldn't have said that so well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Once, yeah, we were at the zoo, zoo doing a petting zoo, and my daughters were like, "It's time to go wash your hands," and I was like, "There's no way my six year old self would have said
2: that." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's so Speaking funny. of kids, though, I know you mentioned this uh, a while back um, when I was talking to you which I think is so fascinating. And I know I've tried to like re-explain it and I've always done a really bad job. So I'm going to let you explain it. But <laughs> like how like we have this belief that we need to increase the curriculum in schools about financial literacy, but how it doesn't actually help. <laughs>
0: So I love, there's mixed results. I love the work by Willis is her last name, W-I-L-L-I-S, and she writes very tongue in cheek, The Case Against Financial Education. But what she talks about is how financial education, most research shows that it doesn't work. If it does work, it goes away right away, that that it appears that kids need Chances to do experiential practice with money that once we teach them about money and then make them wait until 18 to do anything with money, it disappears, right? So it's great stuff. And then also, I just did a great study of my um, good friend, Kenneth White, where we're looking at the relationship between quantity and quality of financial education, right? What we found is that the quality of financial education definitely improved um, financial um, knowledge and financial anxiety, Quality, no, sorry, financial knowledge, but not financial anxiety. Quantity of financial education did not improve literacy, but did improve anxiety. It was almost like the more they were getting financial education, the more they could say, I don't really have to worry about my finances because I'm checking off that box. Yeah. And those of them that had quality financial education were, again, going back to the idea of the Dunning-Kruger, were realizing, I have so much more I need to learn, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think financial education for children... Is wonderful. I think it needs to be not done by teachers who are pulled too thin, right? We mm-hmm. give a 24 year old this new curriculum on financial education. They feel insecure about their finances. Guess what they're teaching their students? Anxiety about finances because they yeah, don't know what to do. They're, doing. they're yeah. like, oh gosh, am I teaching this right? Am I doing it right? That's not what we want our kids to learn, right? So we need uh, financial educators to teach our kids multiple time points with the chances to practice.
2: Okay, yeah. there you
1: go. Sand fail, yeah,
2: yes, yeah. <laughs> so, I funny because on the education piece, I thought it was, this was super fascinating. Again, it's just a personal experience of mine. But my little brother joined the military, but he joined the military like at an older age. And the military makes everyone go through like a financial yes. know, literacy thing,
0: it's a natural, he, thing. natural
2: yeah. And he came out of it like so well, like because hmm. I think he was like 24 when he entered. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, he's been Good job, you know. But then he's talking about all the young kids that are like 18 coming out of high school and how he's like, they're not listening at all, they missed all of it. Yeah. He's like, but it just how like the different times that when him being taught at 24 had some life experiences, had to pay bills, you know, at some for a few years before he joined the military really sought in, yeah, the need for that literacy.
0: I love. Helping, supporting military families. My research in my PhD was actually around military families. And one of the misnomers is we often say military members don't make enough, And they don't. But if you look at 18, 19, 20-year-old, 21-year-old cohorts, military members are significantly wealthier than their counterparts, right? Like their counterparts in the civilian population. And so part of it is like, do you have to do everything right financially when you are so flush with cash at 18 like do you have time and, and that. some, that's interesting but yes i think the study of like the the mindset of like we're putting kids in high adrenaline situations but we don't want them to react in their personal life with that same drive that they were teaching them to do in in the field so
1: yeah of- that's that's all so cool
0: yeah <laughs> it's good
1: Megan, I can't thank you enough for just your wisdom and just your time and effort and passion into this because I think it is one, it's important. And two, I think it's needed. And so uh, thank you for oh. all the research you've done. Thank you for your time today. If our listeners wanted to reach out or hear more about you, what would be a good way for them to do that?
0: Yes. My email is mccoy at ksu.edu. You're welcome to reach out to me or my LinkedIn. Also, I am so remiss to not mention something. At the beginning, you asked, what are my relationships to FPA and CFP board? And I went on the tangent about FPA, but I do want to mention that I'm co-editor for CFP board's journal. And so all the financial planners out there, please consider reading our articles in the financial planning review that is for our CFP members. Um, Also, I helped write their client psychology textbook for the CFP board, which is for sale And if you want to read more too, I also just wrote a book with some amazing co authors called The Financial Planning Counseling Skills that also has a lot of these um, skills for talking to your clients, learning about their values, and really um, being able to handle those big emotions that come up. That's
1: (laughs) good. Awesome. Megan, you're a rock star. That's why we (laughs) had you on the show. Uh, Thank you for being so astute and passionate about what you do. We appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. uh,
1: you've been listening to the Uncommon Wealth Podcast I've been your host Philip Ramsey and, and I'm Aaron Kramer yeah. Till next time go get some financial therapy yes
0: <laughs> that's all for this episode brought to you by Uncommon Wealth Partners be sure to visit UncommonWealth.com to learn more about our services don't miss an episode as we introduce you to inspiring people who are actively pursuing an uncommon life